Well, Chen is a 30-year-old woman who lives in Taiwan, and she recently got married, and her wedding made the news. In fact, I read about it in my weekly news magazine. The reason it was newsworthy is this. Chen married, you ready for this? I love it. Chen married herself. Now, you know, I'm not making this up. Chen complained to reporters that she had been, uh, been unsuccessful at finding a good husband. And so she planned a solo wedding. She went out and she bought a dress, beautiful gown. She staged a lavish ceremony. And then she whisked herself away on a honeymoon to Australia. And I thought to myself as I'm reading my news magazine, well, at least she'll always be in love with the person she married. <laughs> Well, welcome to week one of a five-part series we're calling I Do, Five Commitments to Make Love, love Last. Five Commitments to Make Love Last. Now, disclaimer, uh, from the get-go, if you're single, uh, we've done many marriage series over the years at Christ Community Church. We always plan our marriage series with single people in mind. Uh, we want to make sure that there are going to be plenty of insights woven throughout these next five weeks that you'll find applicable to relationships in your life, even if you're not married. So hang in there with us. And in fact, today, the first week in the series, Sue and I are actually going to be addressing specifically single people. So if you're, you know, if you're 16 and single, and by the way, I hope if you're 16, you're still single... Or you're 26 and you're single, or you're 56 and you're single, or you're, you were married but you're single again, I think uh, God's got something in store for you today as we look into his word. We're going to start with the first of five commitments. I'm going to give you the commitment, ask you to repeat it with me, and then Sue and I are going to be, begin teasing it out. So if you're single and you're looking forward to the possibility of one day being married, how do you go about choosing that life partner? That's the focus of the first commitment. Here's the commitment. Number one, partner with a Christ follower. Partner with a Christ follower. Now say that together with me. Partner with a Christ follower. Great. Well, there's three musts that go with this commitment, and we want to share those with you today. We often talk about a must-see movie, you know, or a must-read book, a must-eat-at restaurant. Well, we have three musts we want to share with you. In fact, this would be a great time to get out a pen and the outline in your program. You can write down some of these bullet points that we have for you. Before I give you the first one, though, I just want to talk a little bit about the motive behind this message for single people. I want you to hear my heart, Jim's heart on this. What we say today is because we love you and care about you, not because it's popular and easy to talk about. We have been in ministry long enough to see too many train wrecks when it comes to relationships and marriages, too much pain in divorce and broken families, broken hearts. We do not want that for you. We do not want you making bad choices with lifelong ramifications. So please know that we have crafted this message with love and care for you. We want the absolute best for you. And the absolute best is what God wants for your lives. And that is to partner with a Christ follower which involves these three musts, okay? Must number one, choices. Must number one, choices. Turn with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 12. The commitment to partner with a Christ follower requires that you make choices. 
Let me read Proverbs 12, 26 to you. It says, a righteous man is cautious in friendship, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. What does that mean, cautious in friendship? The NIV Study Bible footnote helps us out. The righteous person chooses friends with care. Another version says, chooses his friends carefully. Is that how you choose your friends? Carefully, wisely. How about the people you date? Are you careful? Or that potential life partner? Is that how you're making this choice? Now, the fact of the matter is, some of us don't feel like we really have much choice in the matter. There's just some outside force making this happen when it comes to a life partner. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Some of you may know that Jim and I are taking ballroom dancing lessons on Friday nights. It's not pretty, but we're doing it, okay? He's such a good husband and not a half bad dancer, I may add, but we are not going to demonstrate that. Anyway, we have this cute little 20-something instructor, and she's all enthusiastic in her little swingy skirt and her heels, you know, that she dances in. Well, she lines the men up on one side of the gym and the women on the other side of the gym, and she walks us through step by step what we are to learn from her. She's a really good instructor. Once in a while, she turns to the guys and asks for a partner to demonstrate this new step. I wish you could see this lineup of men looking down at the floor, looking up at the imaginary fly on the ceiling, <laughs> anything but make eye contact with her. Until finally our friend Bob points at our friend Steve and goes, he'll do it. <laughs> that is not the best way to get a partner, wouldn't you say? And that's certainly not the best way to get a life partner. Life partnerships that last get launched when we make good choices for ourselves. Choices is a must. You wish you could do that. <laughs> Number one, choices. If you want a love that lasts, if you want the kind of relationship that we're describing in this series, it doesn't just happen. Just an aside here, okay, you should know something about your speakers during this series. In a month from now, Sue and I celebrate our 35th anniversary together. So, yeah. You know, married at eight years old, just, yeah. But I want you to know that we've, we've got some experience at this love that lasts because we, we are still madly in love with each other. But it starts with choices. Doesn't just happen. Choices have to be made. And you, you are the one who must make those choices. Now, I know this sounds like such an obvious point. You're saying, well, why do you need, need to say this? It's because there are two very popular misconceptions out there. Okay, the first one is this. Some people mistakenly assume, listen, that God makes this choice for you. Okay, God has created some perfect individual just for you. It's your one and only, so don't miss him. Don't, don't miss Ms. Wright or Mr. Wright or, or you're in deep weeds. Now, what I'd like to, to say to you is that this particular perspective not only doesn't square with Scripture, it doesn't square with logic either. Let me start with logic. Okay, I want you to imagine for, for a moment a guy named Joe. And according to this theory that God has a one and only for you, God's one and only for Joe is a gal named Emma. Uh, only trouble is 
Joe messes up. He misses God's will for his life. He meets Katie. He falls in love with Katie. He marries Katie. Well, friends, this begins to set negative ripple effects into motion that are going to have worldwide ramifications. I mean, because you stop and think about it. Okay, Joe has now married Katie, but Katie was God's one and only for Eric. Oh, messed up that. And so Eric is not only denied the perfect partner that God had designed for him, but now Eric goes out and marries Rachel, but Rachel was supposed to marry Dylan. You see how this is working? I mean, the ripple effects are going to reach Brazil and India, Mozambique, all because Joe screwed up. And, and going back to Joe for a moment, remember he was supposed to marry Emma. That was the one and only for, for him. Well, now Emma's left without her one and only, so she goes out and marries Blake. But Blake was supposed to marry Grace. Oh, my goodness. The world is a mess. Joe got it started. You see why this notion that God chooses our life partner for us and that it's one very specific person just doesn't match up with logic doesn't match up with the Bible either, and we're going to get to what the Bible says about the choice of a life partner in a moment, but first let me tell you about another popular misconception about how this choice is made. Some people mistakenly assume that God makes the choice for them. Other people mistakenly assume that love makes the choice for them. So you just fall in love. There's nothing you can do to make love happen. Love just happens. In fact, you can't prevent it from happening when it happens. Love happens. Has love happened to you? Oh, it happened to me a number of times. First time when I was 15 years old, I met Lydia at summer camp. She was beautiful. And I remember going on starry, you know, nights with the stars out. I remember one occasion we stopped at the base of this great big oak tree, and I looked in Lydia's gorgeous eyes, and I said three words that I had never said in my life to another girl except my sisters, and I didn't always mean it when I said it to them. I love you. Lydia, I love you. And then a week later, I met Lydia's best friend, Marcia, and I fell in love with Marcia, and I dumped Lydia. <laughs> Will love choose a good life partner for us? I'm talking, of course, about feelings of love, not the biblical definition of love. Well, you know, that seems to be the theme of every chick flick, romance novel, and country western song out there. But if you want a life partnership that lasts, you better be careful about letting feelings of love make the choice for you. By the way, let me say, this isn't just a problem for young lovers, like people who are dating in high school and people in their, in their 20s and so on. One of the first weddings I ever did, I was like 24 years old at the time, and I married this 60-something-year-old couple. He was a widower. She was a divorcee. You know, so I took him through pre-marriage counseling at 24. What did I know? And so we're going through it, and I'm thinking, you know, these, these people are, are not a good match from what I could see. And several of their friends actually came to me and said, a pastor, if these guys marry each other, it's going to be a disaster. Well, I could see it, their friends could see it, but this couple couldn't see it. And in fact, when I brought it up with them, they said, but we're in love. So they got married, and like a couple of months later, things were so bad, they were actually living at opposite ends of the house. 
Will love choose a good life partner for us? Yeah. Choosing a life partner is not something God does for you. Choosing a life partner is not something love does for you. Choosing a life partner is something you do for yourself. Now, let me quickly add, so you don't misunderstand me here, I am not suggesting that God doesn't have any role in this choice. God has a huge role. But do you know what God's role is? God's role is to provide the wisdom with which you can make the important decisions of your life. You know, God's wisdom is, is in this book, and you ignore the book, you neglect the book, and you make stupid decisions. See, God gives you wisdom, but it's your responsibility as to whether or not you're going to seek out that wisdom and then apply it to your life. I, I, Sue had us read in Proverbs chapter 12 earlier. I want you to go back to the book of Proverbs. It may still be open on your lap. This is sometimes referred to as the Old Testament's book of wisdom because it's filled with short, pithy, wise statements. And I want you to go to chapter 4. And let me read a few verses here about how important it is to seek out and apply God's wisdom to our lives. Okay, listen to what God has to say. Proverbs chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. God says, get wisdom. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Don't forget my words or swerve from them. Don't forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she'll watch over you. Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Get wisdom. God doesn't make the choice for you. Love doesn't make the choice for you. If you're single, hoping to find the right person, the choice has got to made by, be made by you. And it's only a question as to whether or not you'll make a wise choice or a foolish choice. Your responsibility is to seek out and apply God's wisdom to your life. You get it? Good. Now, just a footnote to this point before we, we move on. I want to speak for a second here to married couples. Some of you are in an unhappy marriage. Wouldn't be surprising in a crowd this size and at our other three campuses uh, watching this right now. And sometimes I hear from people in an unhappy marriage that this is their reasoning. They say, well, I know what my problem is. I missed the perfect person. See, God had just the right person, the one and only, and I missed him or her. And so now I'm stuck in this lousy marriage. So if I could just get rid of this loser, I could then go out and find that perfect person. You see, on the basis of what we've just discovered in God's word, it doesn't work that way. It's not a, a matter of God making the choice for you and dropping a one and only in your lap. It's a case of God giving you wisdom and saying, okay, seek it out, dig it out of my word, and apply it to your life. And I would say to you, if you made a foolish decision when you got married, don't compound your foolishness now by bailing out. Now's the time to stick with it and, and to begin to seek out and apply God's wisdom to this relationship. Okay, must number two, Christ. Must number two is Christ. If you are willing to make this commitment to partner with a Christ follower, then the people you date, one of whom you will eventually marry, must be connected to Christ. I know that sounds fairly obvious, but sometimes that's easier to say than to put into practice. Let me give you an illustration from my own personal experience in this regard. I was a freshman in high school when I 
got serious about saying yes to God and his call on my life. I had heard as a child that God loved me and that he had given his son Jesus to die for me. I knew I was a sinner. That was pretty obvious as a kid. But I um, was challenged then to think about opening my heart to Christ and asking for his forgiveness. And the pieces finally came together as a high school student when I was at another church and a, a speaker was actually used by God to speak right to my heart. And I had this intense struggle going on and, and the challenge was given to come forward for that next steps packet, so to speak, to come public and say yes to God's call in your life. And I did that. As hard as that was, it was the best decision I have ever made in my life. And I said to God, I don't even know what this means for my future. I just know I want Christ to be the center of my life, and I want to walk in his ways. Okay, so here I am as a high school student, and it's now, you know, the dating game in high school, and you look around and you go, okay, I'm going to partner with a Christ follower. Hmm, slim pickings. Okay, not a lot of guys are really centering their lives on Christ. So when I went off to a Christian college, I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, this is going to be amazing. All these guys are going to be following Christ. I can get to be friends with them, date, you know, choose a life partner. Well, I had been on campus for about two weeks, and I began to see this poster everywhere on campus of this guy running for freshman class president. And I said, who? Who gets on campus and runs for president, you know, and puts posters up of himself? I mean, who does that? <laughs> I have since learned that leaders lead. You know, wherever they go, they just, just start leading, okay? But I met this guy in person a month later. We had this conversation. He called me up. We took some study break walks to the park. He took me to a concert. I went home for Christmas break. He mailed me a silver locket and a book about love. And he invited me to come back early to campus because his home was near there, and he wanted me to meet his family. My mother's freaking out. Like, you've been gone for three months. Who is this guy? <laughs> so I came back. I met his family. Great people. They were Christians. Got back to school, and I said, let's just be friends. I broke up with him. I just knew in my heart, as much as I liked him, great qualities, he did not have his life centered on serving Christ. It was a hard decision, but that's what I had to do if I was going to stick to my commitment in high school that I was going to partner with a Christ follower. Ouch. <laughs> You know, that hurt. But, but I got to tell you, God actually used that experience of getting dumped by Sue to wake me up to the realization that Christ was not central to my life. Now, that's a story for another time. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, because I, I want to look at a passage that underscores the second must. Our commitment is to partner with a Christ follower. The first must is you got choices to make. God's not going to make it for you. Love isn't going to make it for you. You've got choices to make by applying the wisdom of God's word to your life. And, and hopefully you'll choose to date and eventually become a life partner to someone for whom Christ is central. Okay, so Christ is the second must. 
We're going to look at a scripture that underscores this point. Now, I know that this probably sounds terribly exclusive to some of you, maybe even bigoted. You know, just a Christ follower, a fellow Christ follower? Why that narrow a pool? So let me read the text to you, and then I'm going to give you several good reasons why this is actually wise advice. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. As I read these, these verses to you, I want you to note that Paul separates Christ followers from non-Christ followers with five contrasting phrases. Okay, five contrasting phrase and, phrases, and I'll explain each as we go. So he's addressing Christ followers. Verse 14, he says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Okay, five contrasts. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common. You say, whoa, Paul's being pretty harsh with non-Christ followers, referring to them as wickedness. Well, please understand, but Paul's not suggesting that Christ followers are morally superior to non-Christ followers. He would say we're all sinners. We're all tainted by wickedness. But the difference is this, Christ followers are people who've wakened up to that realization, put their trust in Jesus, asked him to forgive them because of his work on the cross, paying the penalty for their sins. And so they're starting a new walk, asking God's help and making changes in their lives. That's the difference between righteousness and wickedness. Verse 14 continues, second contrast. What fellowship can light have with darkness? Okay, Jesus said he's the light of the world. If you follow Jesus, according to God's word, you walk in the light. If you don't, you walk in spiritual darkness. Verse 15, third contrast. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial is a, another name for Satan. The Bible says that, that every single one of us starts out as a captive to Satan. Okay, we are citizens of his kingdom. We do his bidding. Yet when we put our trust in Jesus, Jesus rescues us. He comes on a rescue mission and sets us free and transports us into his kingdom. Here's a, a fourth contrast between Christ followers and non-Christ followers. End of verse 15. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? That's pretty straightforward. A fifth and final contrast, verse 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Paul says, listen, you Christ followers ought to know that when you put your trust in Jesus, part of the you know, one of the bonuses you get is God promises to send his spirit to come live inside of you. Not true of a non-Christ non follower. In fact, if Jesus isn't the number one priority of your life, then something else is. It may be your job, it may be your family, it may be the bears, but some other priority is an idol because that's what a number one priority other than Christ is. It's an idol. So five contrasts. Paul shows us five ways in which Christ followers are different, dramatically different from non-Christ followers. And that's why he says in the opening verse of the passage, verse 14, that Christ followers shouldn't yoke themselves together with non-Christ followers. Yoke is a great word. It's a farmer's word. Circle it if you got your Bible open. You know, it means to hitch up, to, to, to harness together two animals that are thoroughly compatible, same size, same strength, because together they're going to pull the plow, they're going to pull the wagon. And Paul says, so if you're a Christ follower, don't hitch up with a non-Christ non follower. I think that's interesting because we still use that expression today of people who get married. They got hitched. 
That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Now, his counsel may, may still seem a bit extreme to some of us. Wait, wait, wait a second. So the pool, if I'm a Christ follower, the pool is limited to fellow Christ followers? I mean, isn't that like a religious uh, bigotry or discrimination? Let me give you three good reasons to take this counsel seriously. By, by the way, these aren't my reasons. They come out of a book by Tim Keller. Uh, Dr. Keller has written a number of bestsellers on the New York Times bestseller list, but he's written a recent book called The Meaning of Marriage. It was one of my summer reads, uh, knowing that I was going to be doing this series. Uh, Dr. Keller is a pastor of a downtown Manhattan church, so he is used to trying to explain God's Word to hardened New Yorkers who are very skeptical, uh, you know, uh, look condescendingly with lots of questions about what God's Word says. So here's what Dr. Keller says about this advice of Paul not to partner with a non-Christ follower. He says three good reasons. First, if you're a Christ follower, then Jesus is the most important aspect of your life, right? And if Jesus is the most important aspect of your life and not so in the life of your partner, there's not going to be an understanding on, on your partner's part of what makes you tick, of what's most important to you. You're not going to share this core intimacy of a relationship with Jesus. He says, second problem. Over time, you're going to find yourself giving up your transparency. See, if you're a Christ follower, you get all jacked up about stuff like going to church and, you know, you read something in the Bible and you say, oh, that was so cool, and you're looking for somebody to share it with. You go to school, you go to work, and a conversation develops around spiritual things, and you say, oh, this was really great. I had this wonderful conversation today. And you don't share that in common with your non-Christ following spouse. Their eyes glaze over. You know, they look at you as if to say, wow, when I married you, I knew you were into Jesus, but I didn't think you were this overboard. I mean, this is annoying hearing this constantly. And you know what you'll do? You'll start talking and sharing less and less and less about it. You'll become less and less transparent. Third reason, Keller says, this is, this is not a good matchup, is because in some cases, if you're a Christ follower, you will eventually even move away from Christ. You thought you were going to partner with this non-Christ follower and you would influence him or her and instead that person is influencing you and Christ is now no longer central to how you spend your time or how you spend your money or how you invest your efforts. I can testify to the hardship of an unequally yoked marriage from an insider's perspective. You see, I grew up in a home where my father was a fantastic father. He was... Uh, so affectionate and kind and provided well for our family, he played games with us kids on the floor and made the popcorn and watched the Disney movies, but he did not share my mom's love for Christ. And I watched my mom go to church alone and sit in church alone. And I watched her try to serve Christ alone. And it was not easy. He did not share her love for the Lord and her desire to give financially and to raise us kids in a unified way. And it isn't easy to watch the persecution. Very subtle, but my dad could be very sarcastic about those so-called Christians. And, and watch her wither under that sarcasm. And so I would not wish that on anyone embarking on a new relationship. I want you to determine now to only partner 
with a Christ follower. Christ is a must. However, I want to give a word of hope to those of you who find yourself in an unequally yoked marriage. I just need to tell you the rest of the story. After 40 plus years of praying for my dad, I have watched my dad at age 89 open up his heart to Christ. It's been amazing. I'm telling you, God is so kind. And now at 91, I see change, I see fruit. And it took my mom fading away with Alzheimer's for him to get the clarity of his sin and his need for a savior. And each one of us kids is now following Christ wholeheartedly, which statistically, when you're in an unequally yoked home, that's not always the case for the kids. And so I am so grateful for the grace of God. And, and you need hope. Those of you who are in that situation, I have a word for you. That God who began a good work in your family because of your witness to your spouse, to your kids, he is faithful. He will complete that. He can do that and answer prayer. I want you to be encouraged and to press on. But I also want to say how much better to start that relationship fully invested as Christ followers. And just a footnote to this point, okay? Please don't make the mistake of thinking that you can date non-Christ followers and yet you know that you're going to marry a Christ follower. Never works that way. Because the habits you set today, even if you are in high school, will eventually lead you into a serious relationship. So date people with whom you have Jesus in common. Okay, here is must number three. Obedience. Must number three is obedience. I want you to turn with me now to one of my favorite chapters, and that's Psalm 1. The very first psalm is only six verses long, but it's power-packed. I love it so much I've written a study guide for it for our community groups. I know our DeKalb women are just finishing up Psalm 1. We've had a blast with it. But let me tell you what I want you to see in Psalm 1, and then we'll read it. I know that's a little backwards, but here's what I want you to see. I want to make the point that it's not enough to partner with somebody who simply has a minimal belief in Christ. Okay, some of you single people sitting here are thinking, okay, um, he goes to church. Good enough, right? Check off the box. She says she believes in God. Check off the box. No, somebody who says they believe in Christ is not enough. You should be choosing a Christ follower. Someone who is serious about being obedient to Christ. You are probably familiar with the statistic that one out of every 2.5 marriages is ending in divorce. That's half. That's shocking. But you also need to know that surveys have found that husbands and wives that are Christ followers, that means they're going to church together, they're reading scripture and obeying it and applying it to their lives and praying together. That divorce rate drops to one out of every 1,105 marriages. That's stunning. So our third must is obedience. Choose a life partner who is a Christ follower. Now, this kind of person is described in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Let me read it to you. 
It says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. All right, so verse 1 describes people who don't follow Christ. These are people who walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of mockers. In other words, they get their direction for their lives from the world around them and the popular notion of what's right and wrong, from movies they watch or magazines they read or friends that they hang out with. And the outcome of that, look at verse 4, they are like chaff that the wind blows away, just an empty husk. This is not good. It's not what you want for your life. But in contrast to the people who get their direction from the sinful world, Verses 2 and 3 describe the person who gets direction from God's word. The psalmist describes these people in verse 2 and 3, and they pay attention to God's law. In other words, God's standards for what is right and wrong. And as a result of living in obedience to that, they are like fruitful trees. They never wither. They always prosper. That's a description of a Christ follower, okay? Someone who's not just a believer, but an obeyer. Now, what I'd like to do is specifically mention four traits, four traits of obedience that single Christ followers ought to be looking for in the people they're dating, and especially in anybody that you're thinking about marrying. A couple of disclaimers before I do this, though. Uh, first is, these are not the only four obedience traits you ought to be looking for. Okay, the Bible is filled with them. I chose what I consider to be like the top four. I mean, these will really rock a relationship, e either in a good sense or a bad sense. But you may come up with uh, some additional ones for your list as you read God's Word. Second disclaimer is this. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that you need to go out and find the perfect person. We're not talking about someone who has arrived. We are talking about someone who's on the journey of maturing in Christ-likeness. They've got a passion to please God with their lives, to walk in obedience to Him. So the trajectory is in the right, in the right direction. Okay, obedience trait number one. I'll give you, again, four of these. You're looking for somebody who's sexually pure. And if they've made mistakes in this area of their lives, you know, they've been forgiven and they're, they're back on God's path of sexual purity. And there are any number of Bible verses that I could cite to make this point, but I want to give you just one quote from the lips of Jesus. Okay, this, this is Jesus himself, although Jesus is quoting something that can be traced all the way back to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. This is ancient wisdom that's been around for, for centuries. Okay, Jesus, Matthew 19, quoting from Genesis, he says, haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning, beginning of time, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and then be united to his wife and then the two will become one flesh. Now, did you see an order in what Jesus just laid out? Okay, Jesus says there's a, a progression here. If you're choosing a life partner, there's a sequence that needs to be followed. Don't get things in the wrong order. 
Okay, no, number one, you as a couple, you leave mom and dad. And number two, then you get united as husband and wife. He's talking about a, a simple thing called a wedding. And then after that's happened, number three, you become one flesh. You begin to enjoy a sexual relationship. That's the order, friends. Don't, don't mess with the order because when you do, you'll just do harm to yourself. You know, when, when are we going to learn that when God gives us a command, it's never just to ruin our fun. It's never to rain on our parade. It's always to save us from ourselves and our self-destructive tendencies. See, this is the, the sexual relationship is to come after the vows have been made. It's to be guarded within the context of a lifelong commitment. It then becomes the superglue of the marriage. But you experiment sexually outside of the marriage commitment as you're dating, and what you do is you superglue yourself to someone and then rip apart, and then superglue to somebody else and rip apart, and you keep on doing this. You do unbelievable harm to yourself. God says, I want to spare you from that. Save it. Okay, save it. And if you've blown it in this area, you know there's forgiveness. But God, God doesn't want it to be a repeated cycle. He wants you to get, get on a path of right living in this regard. Now, just, just a side note to this. This is also, this passage in Matthew 19 is also Jesus' definition of marriage. And I want you to look at it closely here because Jesus, again, is quoting something from the very first book of the Bible. He says this is God's design from the beginning of creation. What is God's design? Look at it carefully. He says it's that a male and a female, you see that verse 4? They, they, they come together and then he continues in verse 5 talking about a man being united to his wife. This is Jesus' definition of marriage. Now hear me, friends. You know, unfortunately, some people today are trying to change that definition to suit their own lifestyles. And they're saying, well, no, marriage ought to cover two men or two women who make this lifelong commitment. And some political candidates are even making this new definition part of their platform. And I want to say to you, this is not primarily a political issue. This is a moral issue. You know, if you believe that God... Now listen, if you believe that God should have the final say in moral issues, if you believe that God should be the one who gets to define marriage because it's his design from the get-go, then I would strongly urge you not to vote for anybody at any level who defies God's standard. You know, if I could say a quick word on the other side of this fence. You know, when you run into people who do promote a different definition, God also calls you to love that individual, even though they're defined God's standard. You don't agree with them, you don't vote for them. You don't vote for them. Anybody who's taken a stick and poking it into the eye of Almighty God when it comes to the definition of marriage ought not to get your vote. Okay, but it doesn't mean you treat that person with disdain. And, and sometimes those on the side of the fence who want to uphold God's standards, they tend to speak with a, a little too much heat about people on the other side of the, physical, uh, of the political fence. So be careful during this election season. H hold your views strongly. Hold up God's standards. Vote for people who support God's standards, but do it in a way that is kind and gracious. 
Okay, that was an aside. I threw that in at no extra cost, okay? We're looking at obedience traits. What, what ought you to be looking for if you're single in a, a life partner? Here's a second one that pops up all over Scripture, self-control. Okay, Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 23 that one of the fruits that God's Spirit produces in the life of a Christ follower is self-control. So single people, please, please, please don't don't yoke yourself to somebody who's lacking in self-control. Now, now again, I'm not talking perfection, but I am talking about, you know, avoiding the person who's still caught in an addictive behavior. And, and this would cover a, a, a wide variety of issues, things people get addicted to. Some people get addicted to alcohol. Don't, don't hook your, yourself up permanently with someone who's addicted to alcohol. Some people are addicted to spending money. And, you know, that's really cool when you're dating and you've got disposable income and you think she looks so great because she spends all her money on clothes and, and she thinks he's so cool because he drives a hot car, you know, and then you get married and the credit card bills come. And nobody thinks it's great anymore. So you, you don't want someone who's, who's addicted to spending money. You don't want someone who's addicted to pornography. You, you don't want someone who's addicted to anger. Oh, and believe me, that's an issue. Proverbs 22, verse 24. There's a lot in Proverbs, by the way, on this issue of anger. But Proverbs 22, verse 24 says something to you people who are considering partnerships with angry folks. It says, do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered. Listen, single ladies, you think you want a bad boy? If he's got a temper, you get out of that relationship, that dating relationship. Run for your life. The time to stop domestic abuse is before it begins. And if you're dating some guy who can't control his temper, leave him. Self-control, it's a big deal. Okay, let me give you a third obedience trait. You're looking for somebody who's unselfish. You know, are, are you dating someone who is constantly talking about themselves? You know, that's really fascinating while you're dating. It's annoying once you get married. <laughs> Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul writes this to Christ followers. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. In fact, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So you're looking for a life partner who's described by these verses, whose world doesn't revolve around themselves. You're looking for someone who knows how to show a genuine interest in others, a person who listens, a person who asks good questions, a person who serves, doesn't wait to be waited on hand and foot, a person who gives generously to others, unselfish. Trait number four, you want somebody who's honest. You know, a long-lasting relationship is built on trust, and trust is built on truth. So if you're dating someone, if you're considering partnering with someone who's got trouble with the truth, if that person bends the truth or twists the truth or withholds the truth or colors the truth, you will never be able to trust that person. Which is why Colossians 3, 9, and 10 says to those who claim to be Christ followers, don't lie to each other. You've taken off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self. You're looking for somebody 
who's honest. Wow, those are really important traits to obedience for a, looking for a life partner. Um, you want somebody who's sexually pure. You want somebody who is self-controlled, who is unselfish, who is honest. I just want to add an important footnote to those four important traits, and that is this. Those are not only characteristics for you to be looking for in a potential life partner. Those are characteristics with God's help, you want to develop in yourself. My single friends, a deeply satisfying life partnership is not just about finding the right person. It's about being the right person. Don't just focus on finding the right person. Work on being that person. You develop sexual purity in your habits and self-control unselfishness and honesty in your relationships. I wish we could do an entire series for singles. We have just barely scratched the surface on some really important topics. And you have been really gracious listeners. And I want to recommend a couple of books to keep the discussion going and keep the search for wisdom going. One is by Kevin DeYoung. It's called Just Do Something. It's on decision-making. Another one is called Sex, Dating, and Relationships. It's on... Sex, dating, and relationships. They're at the Lifeline bookstore. Okay, one final word. Sum it up. The commitment we're asking you to make if you're single and following Christ is that you'll partner with a Christ follower. That includes three musts. Choices is the first must. Don't wait for God to make the choice. Don't wait for love to make the choice. You make Right choices by soaking yourself in the wisdom of God's Word and then applying it to your life, especially what's been said today about choosing that life partner. Second, you're looking for somebody who's connected to Christ. Don't compromise on that one. And third, you don't want just someone who says the right words. You want someone who who is really following Christ, and that's evidenced by obedience in their lives. So here's, here's the final word. It's actually a question. You know, what happens if... You're sitting here today, you're sitting at one of our, our regional campuses, you're listening to this, and you're thinking, I, I'm with the wrong person right now. Okay, based upon what God's Word says, I'm not dating the right person. So my question to you, this is going to be audience participation. Let's hear it from all the regionals as well. When do you get out of a relationship with the wrong person? That was okay, but it wasn't enthusiastic enough. When do you get out of a relationship with the wrong person? Now. now, as soon as you possibly can. Because the longer you stay in a wrong relationship, the more difficult it's going to be to finally break it off. The messier it's going to be. The more destructive it's going to be. Which is why, single people, one of my prayers for you this week, I promise you, this is my prayer for you. I'm going to be praying that if you need to have a difficult discussion, that God will give you the courage and the wisdom to have that difficult discussion. And, and, and that when it's over, you, you will determine with God's help to now set new God-honoring standards for your dating life. And just a stinger to the whole thing, if you're single and you're not in a community group, that is the best place you can be because in a community group, you'll be surrounded with people trying to follow Christ, trying to apply the scripture to their daily lives. And so you'll get the help. You'll, you'll have people at your back, and that's what you need. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand with me for closing prayer. I'm going to turn things over to the regional pastors, but I have a final word to those of you in St. Charles.
Sue, why don't you come on up and join me here? I thought about closing this way. You know, I thought, wouldn't it be a good idea? I'll just ask all the single people to stand because I've been speaking to them and now I can pray for them. And I thought, oh, that's not a good idea. I mean, that's like a, a meat market, right? You're looking and say, oh, she's single? Hmm, yeah, yes. Not good. So I had you all stand, but here's my appeal. My appeal to you is this. You're in a place where we pray a lot. We call this a house of prayer. Jesus said that's what the church should be, a house of prayer. We would like to pray God's blessing on your life. You don't have to be in deep weeds as a single person to get that kind of blessing. Things could be tooling along great for you right now, but we'd still like to pray for you. So there's a prayer team on the far side of the railings. Just go and say, hey, I'm single. Would you pray for my dating relationships and whatnot, my walk with God? And just let them do that. See, I, I passed a church in Geneva this past week that was having a blessing for pets. Let me tell you, we're never going to bless your poodle around here. Okay, or your Siamese cat or your goldfish. But, but we love to bless people. And so if you're a single person, we would just love to bless you. We'd love somebody to pray for you today. So go over there. Let somebody pray for you. Sue and I will hang out at the front as we always do and you know, talk to anybody who sees us looking lonely and in need of help. And uh, you know, seriously, we'll, we'll pray for you if that's what you'd like. Let me close in prayer. Lord God, I want to pray most importantly for those who have heard this message and they realize not only have they not been looking for a Christ-centered person, but they're not yet a Christ-centered person themselves. And that's a real easy fix, God, if they're willing to be humble right now before you. If they're willing to say, God, forgive me. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross and paying for my sins. I want you to come to live on the, on the inside. I want to be under new management. I, I want to begin to follow you, to live in a God-pleasing way. I, I recognize that you've got the right to say what's right and what's wrong, that, that you're the king. And God, I pray for those who, who've just prayed that from the heart. They've said something like that to you. I pray they'd now... Uh, take the follow-up step of stopping by our welcome center and picking up one of those next steps packets that we give to people who make this decision first time. And get them started walking with you, Lord, by your spirit, please. And for the rest of us who claim to be following Jesus, if we're single people in dating relationships, help us to apply what we've heard today and walk in obedience to you. Help us become the kind of people's, people that we want to find as life partners. And for those of us who are, who are married, God, let us learn from the counsel given to single people today, some stuff that we could put into practice in our own lives and help us to be good counselors to our single friends. We pray in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. amen.